because uh, we've had so much great content this morning. It is, uh, it's already moving along, uh, but it's great to be together. So we are in our series that's overarching for the whole year called Build Your House. And it's all about, like we said, we want God to build the house. We want God, his spirit, what he's doing inside of us in our community to be the catalyst for what's going on. Not our own ideas, not our own visions of grandeur or anything like that. We want God to build our house. In the first number of weeks that we've looked at, we looked at the idea of God's presence being with us. And that if we don't have God's presence with us, then we don't want to go anywhere. We don't want to do anything. God, if you're not going ahead of us, please don't send us out. We only want to be where you are doing what you're doing. And I pray that that's your heart too, that you don't want to move anywhere that God's not going. And you want to be in step with the Holy Spirit. And today, we're shifting our focus a little bit to go from uh, presence to our position, all right? God's presence, his, his position is set. He's God, we're not. But then how do we see our position in all of this? Because that's fundamental and vital to how we then can work with him in building his house. So today, I have two loaded questions that... Uh, I'm not sure I'm actually recommending that you go and, like, discuss these questions after, you know, service, go out to lunch and and do whatever and sit around the table after church and discuss them. But I'm going to throw them out there anyway for the context of our conversation today. Uh, First one is this. In your opinion, in your opinion, what is wrong with the world today? You can see why I'm saying, like, maybe not your, your after-church-lunch conversation because it could turn into lunch, into dinner, into whatever, because we can, we are like a long list of things that are wrong with the world today. But in your opinion, what is wrong with the world today? And the second question is this. In your opinion, then, how do we fix what's wrong? That's part two, right? That's day two of the conversation, right? Where, let me tell you, this is how we'll fix it. You know, we always have these great ideas. We can pinpoint what's wrong out there and how we might do it differently or how they should have done it, right? So those are, those are big questions, though. And here's the thing. No matter what you, you come at it like, no matter your background, your philosophy, whatever, whether one is an atheist or an agnostic, whether you're Muslim or Christian, or you consider yourself spiritual, whomever you are, wherever you are in your faith journey, each one of us will have a particular way we answer those questions. We'll have a perspective and a point of view that we think we need to answer those questions from. And how we answer those questions shows how we see the world around us. It's what we call our worldview, right? And depending on the like-mindedness of where you've come from or the the cultural background or uh, whatever the city you've, you've grown up, the region you've grown up with, the economic status that you've grown up with, all those things come into play when we look at our worldview. Now, often when discussing these questions, we immediately move to what? A right and wrong way of looking at things, right? We look at the right way uh, of, of seeing things and the wrong. We, we move to that type of spectrum, right? And it's because we're human, right? But it goes a step further in that because usually we turn the what is right and what is wrong into who is right 
and who is wrong. We don't just leave it in the, in the idea category. We turn it into, that was your idea or my idea, and we become right or wrong, where people around us become right or wrong. And the rightness or wrongness of the question becomes the identity of the people or the people group. You know, we put it this way. We all have opinions of our neighbors to the south, don't we? And some people will see things that they're doing as right, and some will see them as things they're doing as wrong. We all have opinions on those things. And like I said, we transfer it from ideas to people. And we start judging based off that. Now, when it comes to our faith and it wrestling out in, in things like that, we could look at it as far as, like, say, maybe some, some deeper wrestles that people have. Like, say, for instance, if you believe that the physical body is the baseline for defining sex, meaning uh, biology, this will inform your perspective when discussing sex and gender. But if you, if you don't accept the physical body for defining uh, sex, like as in reproductive organs and reproductive realities, then this changes and informs your perspective. Now, both perspectives then can often lead to and become the evaluator in which we judge people who hold those different beliefs. And it creates that schism in that, that, that the space between us in how we view each other, not based off the idea, but now we've made it personal about that other person. Creating this black and white, two sides opposite of each other world that polarizes and alienates, is that, that's what it leads us to. Way too often in life, it leads to that type of thinking. Now, in life, there's certainly right and wrong, and there's certainly good and bad. Jesus answered these questions a little differently. And he invites us to follow him so that we can see the world the, world the way he does. He says to us, listen, you've got your worldview. Other people will have their worldview. And what I'm asking you to do is to join me and see the world from my view. And when he does so, it invites us into a journey of seeing things totally different. See, for Jesus, what's wrong in the world today is a treatable condition, which is great news. And yet he also claimed that there's only one solution to that condition. And for Jesus, right and wrong is, of course, extremely important. But it's not the whole picture. It's not the whole view. Something bigger is at play that right and wrong only point towards. Think of it this way. I can be right, but I can also be destructive. Think of it. I can, I can be in an argument or a conversation or a debate with you, and I can be factually correct in it. And even though I'm right, my attitude in how I, I come across to you can take my rightness and make me also wrong, can't it? I can think I am better than you because I won the argument or my ideas are better than yours. And my self-righteousness then becomes destructive in that moment. Even if I'm right, I can be totally right and yet destroy relationship by how I handle that rightness. See, lacking love for others as, as its motivation, if we don't have that as our motivation, then our actions only add to the noise that's already deafening in our world. 
See, my rightness, it would be clouded and corrupted by the fact that I cannot be fully right in my own strength, my will or wit. As much as I try, there's going to be parts of me that are always going to be wrong. And I, I live with that. There's always this piece of my rightness that is wrong. And according to Jesus, with him, instead of rightness and wrongness, if we, in being good or bad, if we step back and take a look at it, there's two positions that we can hold. It's not right and wrong. It's lost or found. Because if you were to ask Jesus what's wrong with the world today, I think he would do something like this. I think Jesus would, would get, have that conversation with us by starting to take us back to Genesis 1. And he'd show us God's heart. He'd show us all that God had created and how God said it was good. And he, saw, he would show us that it was meant for humans flourishing. It was meant for all his, of his creation to enjoy and to flourish and to be in relationship with him. Then he might take us to Genesis chapter 2 to show us how work is good, how it creates meaning in our lives, how men and women were created equal as image bearers of God, and how his heart was for us to have life and to live without shame, not carrying the weight of being God, not being our own savior or sustainer, of having to hold what is right and wrong in balance. What we were in that moment in Genesis 2 is we were found in his presence. Adam and Eve walking in the garden with God. But then Jesus might take us to Genesis 3, where we learn that there are other forces at play in the world whose heart is not set on our flourishing and being found in God's presence, but in our being lost and in our destruction. And you see in those moments in Genesis 3, humanity exchanges truth for a lie. And when we do, we experience loss. And as a consequence of becoming positionally lost, not being in the presence of God, our position with God, we're lost. Being found in him in our place in the world, we abdicate it by choosing to know good and evil, right and wrong for ourselves over knowing God. When we chose that, we are without a place to call home because we are without God's presence. Being lost results in what? The knowledge of good and evil results in both those things, good and evil. And yet as we miss the mark, as we trespass against one another, as we exhibit behaviors which deceive others and are crooked, God is still moving. We may have much to think about this from our perspective and comment from, again, our, uh, our worldview and our understanding of how things are happening. But I think what's most important or more important is this. Where is God's heart in all this? How does God view this? I remember when I was, uh, when I was younger, my family, we took a trip to Canada's Wonderland. And uh, if you've never been the theme park north of Toronto in the Vaughan area, and uh, it's, it's, uh, it's Canada's Disney World. Uh, 
And uh, we went there, and as a family, we'd go and enjoy all the, the roller coaster rides and all the activities they would have there. And in my family, I have an older brother that's a couple of years older than me and a sister who is about five years younger than me. And my brother and I were just about at that age where our parents could entrust us to go through the theme park on our own and do the roller coasters that the bigger kids can handle while my parents took uh, our sister to uh, what was back then, it was called Hanna-Barbera Land. For any of you guys who've been there that are that old that you remember going there. Um, and it was like the, the small kid rides, right, where you're going maybe 10 kilometers an hour over very slow rides with lots of repetitive music playing in the background. So they were taking our sister to that, and we were, we were riding the, the big kid rides, the, the grown-up rides, and having fun on the roller coasters. And we had set a time to meet, and there was this uh, globe in, at one of the cross sections where all the, the paths through the park would lead, and there's this big metal earth there. And they were like, we're going to meet at the globe at this time of day, and so we'll, we'll meet you there. And so my brother and I show up, and we probably show up either a few minutes early or right on time, and my parents and my sister aren't there yet. And so we're waiting for a little bit. We're waiting for a little bit. And then my brother turns to me and he says, you stay here. I'm just going to go and look and see if I can find them somewhere. And uh, being the person that I am, I'm like, well, I'm not staying here. If you don't need to stay here, then I don't need to stay here. I'm going to go look for them too. This is silliness. Why are we separating? And so he, he had gone off. So I started to go off after him to be like, oh, I'll just catch up to him and we'll look around. I never found him. And so I was like, well, I'll, I'll just keep looking for my family, my parents, and my sister. I'll keep looking for them. And so I was wandering around looking for them, not finding them anywhere. And so then I thought, you know what? You know how I can probably find them? Ride the roller coasters. You get a much better perspective when you ching, 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 go up at the top. You can see all around. And so I'm like, and then you ride all the way through. It's much faster to go through the park and see it by being on the big roller coasters. And so I thought, I'll ride the roller coasters so I can look up high because I'm, you know, just, you know, I'm like 12. You know, how tall am I in, in all the crowds, right? And so I thought, I'll ride the roller coasters to go and find them. My parents had a totally different perspective on how to be found or to find me. They went to customer service and were getting my name paged repeatedly over the, the public address system, which I did not hear at all on those roller coasters going, you know, really fast and people screaming while I'm like, yay, looking for them. I wanted to be found. I wanted to find them. But my desires of also being able to ride roller coasters conflicted with that desire to be found in that moment. And then finally, we did meet up where we were, we were walking, and I kind of walked up behind them and was like, just sort of got to the same pace of them. And I was like, hey, guys, how's it going? Like, where were you? And all the parental feelings that you'd feel when, you know, your lost son is now found in the middle of a theme park in a big city. And so... Uh, being lost, though, and your perspective on what it looks like to be lost and to be searching to be found or searching to find something, the perspective can be very, very different. And for me, this is what makes the gospel such good news. God's perspective, his heart, and his motivation are what matters. Sometimes we can find ourselves on a roller coaster looking and going through life, experiencing in all the thrills of life and saying, yes, yes, 
I'm looking for meaning in the midst of this. Yes, yes, I'm looking for purpose as I do all the thrills and chills of what life has to offer. But we can see that God's perspective and his searching is really what matters. And we can see this in how Jesus conveys the heart of his father. We've consistently spoken through, if you've been a part of Life Center for the last year or so, of how Jesus only says and does what the Father is saying and doing. And in an interaction with people, with humanity, in its lostness, we see Jesus uh, giving God's perspective. And we see the perspective of people, of ourselves, really. Those, uh, those who view from the lens of right and wrong, us, uh, which is transferred from ideas again to people and how God invites us to view from his perspective. And we see this in uh, an interaction we, he has with some Pharisees and scribes in Luke chapter 15, with Luke writing uh, his version of the gospel for us to understand. And it says this in Luke 15, 1 and 2. It says that now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. That word receives, as those people draw near, those sinners and tax collectors, riffraff and people who aren't following God the way they're supposed to. Humanity, the Pharisees, the scribes, looking and seeing the wrongness of their behavior and their actions. They look at it and say, man, this Jesus guy receives them and eats with them. They say it with contempt. That word receives, the word that's used by Luke invokes the emotion of welcoming someone who you've been anticipating coming. There's a connecting and integrating of someone who has been foreign or apart from you. It also has this joy attached to it as it's something you've been longing for. Like when you've lost something or someone and had a search or a rescue mission and you locate the person you've been looking for. So while the, the Pharisees, they, they meant this as a derogatory statement about who he's actually eating with and the, the choices he was making, spoken through their lens of right and wrong. This also, though, describes the heart of Jesus towards the lost, the tax collector, the sinner's, even the Pharisees and scribes themselves. To make sure uh, the heart of God is understood and clear enough to them in response not only to who Jesus is eating with, but also just how excited he is to spend time with them. We're going to look at the three stories or parables Jesus tells everyone as a response to their grumbling. Now, in these stories, we're tempted to try and define everything. And it's the story of uh, the lost sheep and the lost coin and the, the prodigal son or the loving father. And we're tempted to try and figure out who is who in, the whole, in all these stories. And what do they exactly all mean? And how does this all play out? And what is this, what is this exact meaning of all these stories? But I want us just to, like, again, step back from trying to figure it out what's right and wrong in the story and who plays what part perfectly or not perfectly or anything like that. Let's just step back for a second and try and view it from God's perspective. And there's two parts of it that, that point to me that help me understand where God's heart is in this moment. Because the first two parables start with words like this. What man of you or what woman would? 
And if we were to break it down, what they mean in, in our everyday language uh, and what we would say, he's starting those parables by saying this, which one of you wouldn't dot, dot, dot? Who among you wouldn't also do this? It's at the heart of the comparison between our heart and God's heart that Jesus is really driving at. So don't get lost in the specifics of who's an older son or a younger son. Or what does the coin represent? Or what is a lost sheep? And who is the lost sheep? Is that Israel or is that people in general? Don't get lost in all those things. Hear the heart of the difference between how we would do something and how God would do something. And it starts with this in Luke 15, 4 to 7. What man of you... Having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And so what do we see here? We see that a sheep is lost. God speaks to the lostness of that sheep. Then we see a shepherd who goes looking until he finds it. The shepherd looks and searches for the sheep until he finds it. And then what happens is the shepherd carries the sheep. He puts it over his shoulders with its legs on both sides, and he carries that sheep home rejoicing and has others join in on the party. That is the focus of this story, that Jesus has been looking for us, that Jesus carries us on his shoulders. He's the one that carries the weight of our lostness. And that he is rejoicing when one of us who is lost becomes found. And to be clear on who is lost and who is found, the Apostle Paul reminds of this, of this, he reminds us of this in his letter to the church in Rome, where in Romans 3, 22 and 23, he says, for there is no distinction between the lost and the found or the right and the wrong. For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us is the lost sheep that needs to be found by Jesus. All of us have been lost at some point. Then Jesus goes on to tell the story about a lost coin in the next verses, verses 8 to 10. He says again, Or what woman, what woman amongst you, having ten silver coins, if she loses one of those coins, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, again, just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Again, what do we see? A coin is lost. One of the ten coins is lost. But she seeks until she finds it. She rejoices that she found the lost coin. And that coin is probably a day or two's wages. So it has value. 
We see the focus of the story is on the woman who relentlessly looks for the coin. The value of that coin, it's unchanged in its lostness. It's not like it's worth less because it's lost than when it's found. But just, and just like our value isn't diminished, even if we're lost, or maybe it's better for, for us today in this room that we look at it this way, that we don't see someone else's value as being diminished despite what we think of them, despite whether they are lost or found. But Jesus re- rejoices when what he finds valuable is found. Then Jesus tells a much longer story, but a similar story about a father who has two lost sons. And in this story, the hearts of his two sons are lost. The older one, he sees himself stuck as an overlooked servant in his dad's house. And while the younger one, after wanting to rebel and and suffering the consequences of rejecting his dad and the wisdom of his ways, he returns only wanting to get to that servant level in his dad's house, thinking that he's lost any right to be a son. And while in this, this scenario, we don't see the father out actively searching for his sons in their lostness, he is daily longing for one's return and for both of them to be joyfully in his presence as his sons, as family. In all three stories, we see that there is a position of being lost that in a moment can be changed into being found. The lost sheep, as the shepherd turns the corner and sees the sheep caught or lost by itself, in that moment it went from being lost to being found and is carried home. The lost coin, whose value was never lost, is picked up and its potential restored. The younger son returns home, but before he can make amends, before he can strike a deal to enter his father's house as a servant, he is received by a waiting and watching father who acts identically to Jesus. The older son, the older lost brother, he is entreated to come, to come into the celebration as the son he is and not as a servant and not to see himself as a servant but to see everything that the father has given him. You see, according to Jesus, there is more than one place to be found but there is only one place who is able to rescue us. Again, at the beginning, we talked about how there's so many different worldviews and perspectives and faith systems that all can play into how we view the world. And the world would look at it and say, all religions are basically the same. Isn't that usually what we hear? That all religion and, and faith systems are basically the same thing. But they all tell us that there are different ways to get up the mountain to utopia, to where God resides. But Jesus actually tells a different story. He tells one where he alone came down the mountain to rescue humanity. But in coming down to humanity, there was still a chasm between us and God. Our sin, our brokenness, our rightness versus wrongness, our lostness. 
And rather than just trying to tell us how to get up that mountain or how to bridge that gap or how to get over there, Jesus instead dies to give us the gift of rescue, of salvation, of grace that we could never earn on our own. You see, in reality, repentance is allowing Jesus, the great shepherd, to carry you home from wherever you've become lost. And we can become lost in our rebellion, our own ways, our brokenness, our desire to ride the roller coasters of life looking for purpose along the way. Repentance is allowing Jesus, the great restorer, to restore anything unjust that has happened to you. Like a lost coin, you still retain your full value to Jesus. There is no tarnish or corrosion or brokenness that could lower your value to him. Repentance is allowing Jesus, the picture of a perfect father, to cover your sin, your shame, your stubbornness, and your arrogance, and my arrogance, and my sin, and my shame, to be restored back as a son or as a daughter in God's family. Repentance is turning from something to turning to someone in Psalm 145:18, it says, The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. Today, do you see God only wanting to punish your wrong and barely notice your right? Today, do you see God, no matter what your right or wrong looks like, do you see him as waiting to receive you and to return you to him and bring you home? How do you see your position with God? How have you allowed him to adjust your worldview? This week, I pray that you would allow God to see if there's right versus wrong in you instead of lost versus found. And let him heal that. Instead of evaluating your life on whether you're right or you're wrong before God, allow him to just see you as lost and then found. This week also, allow God to point out to you who you view from a right and wrong perspective instead of a lost or found perspective. Who do you view that way? Who have you allowed in your life to be like, I'm in the right standing, they're in the wrong standing, so I'm superior or I'm better or I, I have the moral high ground and they're down there. Who have you allowed to have that view in your life? Then repent and let them forgive you See him from a lost and found perspective. Just think of it. If you're a lost coin, if you're a lost sheep, what advantage do you have over any other lost sheep or lost coin other than somebody found you? You didn't do any of the finding. You didn't do any of the work. You were completely lost until Jesus found you. Like Nathan in the video 
completely on his own until God shows up and says, listen to that preacher, until God shows up and says, there's a church across the street, until God shows up and puts it on the heart of somebody to say, come and be of our, a part of our community. Lost until God finds you, restores you, brings you home. Third one, allow God to change your perspective from trying to prove or inform others of their wrongness by showing them your rightness to a place where you can help people move from their lostness to being found. And when you do, when we allow God to do this in our lives, then we can join with heaven and our Father there in all the rejoicing that he does. All the rejoicing that says there's more rejoicing than the ten, the nine coins that were found or were never lost, or the ninety-nine sheep that were never lost. There's more rejoicing over the one that comes back, the one that is found, than the ones that are already in the fold. We can join with God in that. So today, I encourage you, like Nathan did in the video, God's got you here for a purpose and a plan to be a part of Him finding what is lost, finding what is valuable to him and bringing it home. Let's pray. God, we just thank you that you found us. God, we thank you that in the middle of our being lost, in the middle of us wrestling out right and wrong and and choosing battles on the knowledge of good and evil rather than standing in your presence and standing with you and allowing you to carry that weight. God, in the midst of where we are now, God, we thank you that you are our good shepherd, that when we wandered off and were lost, you picked us up and brought us home. God, we thank you for being like the woman who who sought after that coin and was relentlessly looking for it knowing its value to her until she found it. We thank you. God, we thank you for being like the loving father who rejoices when his lost son who had wandered off and rebelled comes home. We thank you for restoring us. We thank you for treating the older brother uh, and, and, and entreating him and saying, come into the party, come in. See yourself as the son that you are. God, we thank you that you are continually looking after the lost and bringing them into a place of being found. And God, as we see the people of Cornwall in the surrounding area, God, I pray that you would help us go and move from a place of seeing right and wrong, good and bad, to seeing lost and found. God, that you would move our hearts to see our region from your perspective. God, that we would join you in your search parties to find what is lost and bring it home to see it found. God, allow our hearts to change. We ask you and invite you into that place to give us your perspective on the world around us and on ourselves. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.